This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Journalists have reported the anti-mandate, anti-vax and anti-government protest at Camp Freedom, formerly known as Parliament, in spite of the obvious hostility there to them. And it's turned out to be the most intensely reported protest in our history. So how have the media done with the first draft of it? But first, for a full fortnight, some people backed those protesters in spite of the ugly urgings for executions, the intimidation of locals and lots of anti-social and anti-vax sentiment. But some rather sketchy reports of unsanitary antics stiffened public disapproval of the protest this past week. Who was pelted at offices during an early morning operation today aimed at containing the protest at Parliament? That was Checkpoint's host Lisa Owen introducing her own show last Monday with a lot of P-words there, including the poo that protesters reportedly hurled at police that morning. And as we'll hear, that wasn't the only incident reported that day, casting Convoy 2022 as a bit of a dirty protest and proving potentially pivotal in the public perception of it. A few more P-words for you there. As we heard on Media Watch last weekend, police claims of faeces on the ground at Parliament one week earlier were also pretty widely reported by the media then, though they were contradicted by News Talk ZB's Barry Soper, who was getting his hands dirty down on the front line. There's no faeces anywhere. They've got portaloos down there. Um, and they're, they're Kiwis. A lot of them are, are mandated uh, out of their jobs. And this week, Barry Soper didn't seem too sure about those accounts of poo being hurled at the police last Monday as well. Um, I haven't seen any evidence of that, although the police did put out a statement saying that um, they had human waste uh, thrown at some officers. Uh, I haven't seen any photos or anything circulating of that, but it does seem extraordinary. But uh, obviously we take the police's uh, word for that. Now, without wanting to get too scatological, there's more than one kind of human waste, as mentioned by the police in their statement on Monday. But media and commentators all reported protesters throwing poo. Some said it was even sourced from Portaloos nearby, even though they didn't know that for sure or who threw it. But ambulance workers on the scene did later report seeing protesters doing that, contradicting the protesters' sign, we never flung any poop. Anyway, much more serious, obviously, was that car driving into the line of police on Tuesday. Shades of Charlottesville there. And three officers were treated also for stinging liquid in the eyes that same day. Now, that was reported in the media to be possibly acid. And that was then repeated as fact by outraged commentators throughout the day, even though police still couldn't confirm what it was three days later. And Assistant Police Commissioner Richard Chambers also told reporters this on Tuesday. Can I just reiterate that... Uh, we are the only agency who can investigate sexual assaults and if anyone would like to come forward to us uh, uh, to talk about what may have occurred occurred to them, then uh, please do come forward and we will work with you as best we can. Now that was widely reported to by the media, although he did say that comment was based on what he called suggestions and chatter within the occupation. Now on News Talk ZB the next day, Drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen was not, like her colleague and partner Barry Soper earlier, prepared to take the police's word for it. What this means is that you have to start questioning all the other stories that the police have thrown out there without any verification whatsoever. So suggesting that there might have been sexual assaults within the camp without any proof of it. Suggesting, saying that faeces were thrown. There is no proof of that at the moment. So now we're starting to question everything, aren't we? How much of what the police have told us is verifiable? And that was music to the ears of the protesters who, it turns out, do pay attention to mainstream media sometimes. TVNZ's Kristen Hall captured video of those on-air comments playing on a loop 
by a loudspeaker at the occupation. Now, in the groundswell protest rally last year, the organisers bought advertising space on Newstalk ZB so that they could broadcast a special address to the attendees during the rally. The convoy crowd got that one for free from ZB this week. Another story this week that further soiled the image of the protest was this. People are being told not to swim near Shed 6 and the Taranaki Street dive platform has now been closed after reports Protesters at Parliament have been dumping raw sewage into stormwater drains. In a statement, the Wellington Regional Council confirmed reports of waste being dumped into drains around Parliament and the chair, Darren Ponter, told RNZ's Morning Report it was abhorrent and disrespectful to Wellingtonians, not to mention the environment. Stuff the same day reported that swimmers and marine life alike would be splashing through human excrement down at the harbour. But how did they know that this had actually happened? How did you find out about this? Um, we received uh, images and reports from the uh, from the general public that um, the um, sewage from camper vans was being uh, tipped down stormwater drains. So this was what pictures of people emptying it. Uh, yes, uh, blatantly just emptying their cassettes that uh, sit inside the camper vans. Clearly became full uh, after a while, and um, they were just emptying them down the gutters. Whereabouts? Uh, Kate Shepard uh, place, ironically, right outside the Ministry for the Environment. So ironic as well as disgusting. Now, given the number of people and vans in and around Parliament and the small number of portaloos, it'd be a surprise if it hadn't happened a lot more times over the past two weeks. But Media Watch is aware of just one picture of what Darren Ponter described there in that location. But while stuff reported on Tuesday that wastewater testing was being done in nine locations and culverts, no results have been reported since then. And all this came after anger about another image that was published in the weekend, one which allegedly showed a temporary tarpaulin toilet built onto the side of the Cenotaph, which is the capital's memorial to soldiers who didn't fight in two world wars for that. The pictures went viral on social media immediately, even after it was confirmed that it was in fact a screened-off temporary shower stall, and the occupiers took it down amid the outcry. So while there was anger about extremism and calls for executions at the protest and all the aggression and the intimidation of locals and anti-social and anti-vax sentiment for over a fortnight, it was reports of them behaving like grubby freedom campers that really seemed to stiffen public resentment of camp freedom. The anti-social behaviour this week also shifted the media spotlight from the so-called celebrities aligning themselves with the convoy and on to the hitherto mostly anonymous leaders of the protest. Former Conservative Party leader Leighton Baker, for instance, apologised on the parliamentary forecourt for not checking his phone messages on Sunday night, which included a heads-up from the police about the pushback plan that they were rolling out the next morning. And people supporting the protest from outside finally fell under scrutiny for what they were supporting – like Marty Berry, for instance, from the Red Stag Timber Company, interviewed on Morning Report. A car being driven into police, human excrement being thrown at the cops. You're happy with that no, kind of stuff? of course not. No, of course not. No, I don't condone that. Are you giving your money to it? I'm giving yeah. money to, to fund the infrastructure to... Who are you funding? Protest, ...to protest mandates, which include 
the continual closure of the border for international tourism. The Dominion Post front page on Tuesday led with dramatic news that Canadians were helping fund and support the occupation here too. And four reporters were credited with that scoop, though they later had to correct one claim that a fundraising website was linked to the Canadian Freedom Convoy movement. The same day, though, the police confirmed they were looking into how the protest is being funded and that legislative powers were available if it was illegal. Now, conspiracists here would have reckoned it was no coincidence that the government and the cops in Canada are now bringing the hammer down in their capital, just as ours pushed back here as well. But in Canberra, protests and occupations across the ditch have been going on for weeks, attracting thousands, and with their media also struggling to answer the question whether to give the oxygen of publicity to protesters representing such fringe views. And this week, the host of the ABC's Media Watch show, Paul Barry, reached this conclusion. So, do they deserve any sort of hearing? Well, on their opposition to vaccine mandates and the sacrifices they've made, yes, they do. And good on those in the media who braved the hostile reception and bothered to listen. Now, some of the hostility reporters there encountered was intense, but Paul Barry praised some protest leaders, such as a former Qantas pilot, who gave his people this message. We have all struggled with legacy media. We have. But we need to start treating people with respect. We need to. Because why would anyone want to talk to somebody who keeps calling them a liar? That's right. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. Late last week, reporters were told by unnamed organisers that they were free to report from the occupation site and they even got an apology for all the previous obstruction and harassment, as we heard in Media Watch last weekend. But since then, Stuff's Henry Cook was obstructed last Monday like this. I'd like to leave. I'm okay. going to actually ask security to come and remove I'm not going to leave because I have freedom of movement on Palmer Ground. It's okay. my workplace and everyone's front lawn. Yeah, it's only been up for One protester pulled his mask off in that encounter, while another then gave it back, and the woman who initially asked him to leave later came back and said sorry. So little harm done there. But on Wednesday, Henry Cook posted footage of himself being aggressively turned back on the public street well outside the protest site. Mr. Public, Mr. Public, Public Road. I don't care about the public road. Well, I do. That's why I'm here. Get your shit out of here, right? And while the focus has fallen overwhelmingly on the chaos in the capital, protests elsewhere have boiled over alarmingly as well. On Thursday, for example, TVNZ's deputy political editor Mikey Sherman even found herself trying to keep the peace in Christchurch between a parent and her terrified children and some highly agitated protesters who descended on a primary school to abuse the visiting Prime Minister and the reporters, like her, covering the event. We intervened to try to calm the situation, the mother's children still present and understandably distraught. School staff condemning the protesters, but the abuse simply continued. Now, many protesters claim that they came here to save our democracy, but clearly there wasn't much understanding among them or respect for the role that the fourth estate plays in it. Documentary maker Tony Sartorius runs Unreal Films, which is dedicated to documenting democracy in action, as well as the debate and dissent in all its forms that goes with it. And he's filmed at protests here and in Australia, and even in places like Bougainville, for example, where democracy really was under threat. So I asked him how will this, the most intensely covered protest ever, go down in our democratic history, and how well did the media do with their first draft of history? But first he told me how he was also ejected from the protest site this past week. 
Well, I mean, you know, in fairness, um, I, the, the entrance I initially went in, um, I asked the chaps in the high-vis uh, if it was okay, and they said, sure, it's a freedom rally and um, everyone's welcome, which was nice. Um, I, I was there for a couple of hours, and it was only when I was walking past another entrance with some other security people there that um, I ran into a problem. They approached me and... Um, they wanted me to tell them if I was media or not. I said, you know, as a documentary maker, that's some people interpret that in different ways, but I told them what I was doing and said they should make a decision. Um, they asked me if I supported their cause or not. I said I, I wasn't there for that reason. I was there to try to tell the truth as best I could about it, but, you know, I wasn't there as a supporter. I was there to try to tell a story. They decided to throw me out. Asked them if they were seriously planning to throw me out of a freedom rally, and they, they were, so <laughs> was, I... I um, um, I decided my chances of doing any more useful work were over, so I left. I then had one follow me down the road and want me to record into his phone to, to record my name and contact details so that they could put out a warning about me, I guess, which I didn't do. That's quite worrying, isn't it? You'd, I wouldn't be uh, knowing what has been done uh, at this protest with people's personal information and you know, the identification of people who are deemed to be against their cause. It made me pretty mad at the time, to be honest, Colin. I mean, I'm a Wellington guy, and I, you know the the openness of Parliament something I've always felt quite proud of. I think, like a lot of Wellington people, so it wasn't a good feeling. I mean, you know, in fairness, I guess it's the sort of thing you see more and more of in New Zealand these days. A lot of people feel like they should control the media, and it's legitimate to do that. So it's not the first time that's happened to me or anything, but it was weird to have it happen in a public place like that. Yeah, this must be the most intensely covered, the most mediated, if you like, um, protest in our history by miles. I mean, the, the 81 tour is a comparison a lot of people make, saying that the marches were bigger, involved more people, even um, foreshore and seabed march, uh, hikoi. But, I mean, this time the media is one of the things that makes it the difference because from small little morsels of content to live streams, it's, it's just everywhere and all around the country people are watching it each day. Yeah, look, I personally find the whole live streaming thing pretty difficult to understand. You know, I've been covered and been involved with many, many protests and occupations over the years. Nothing like that's ever happened before, as far as I know. I think the the nation's media need to have a really hard think about why that happened and what it means. You know, obviously, everybody knows if they want to go and find out the moment-by-moment, blow-by-blow, live video of what's happening at this protest, they can do that. The protesters themselves are putting it all over the internet. But it seems to me that if somebody goes to a media uh, website or app, they are expecting something a bit different, which is, you know, um, information claims and so forth that have actually been through an editorial process, been fact-checked, you know, there's some sort of response to people's claims. To, to just broadcast uncritically 12 hours a day uh, for two weeks uh, everything that gets said on that stage, that's never happened before. And I actually think that has served the function of making this seem bigger and more important than it otherwise would have. But, but, Tony, hasn't it also given people a pretty vivid and uncensored picture of what's actually happening um, for people all over the country who might be interested? So uh, we, we have so many, so few agreed facts about what's going on, so many claims, counterclaims, you know, some quite outlandish, you know, things that can't possibly be true and some people in the protest denying absolutely anything that happens that comes out of a mainstream media news report. So to be able to see uh, in a kind of unmediated picture of what's happening, isn't that kind of helpful? I, I, I mean, it doesn't strike me that it is very helpful to be able to see from the protest stage for all that many, many, many hours. I mean, that's I wouldn't really call that unmediated. That is mediated. That's controlled by the protesters. It allows them to represent the issue exactly how they want. 
and things have been said on that stage which are some pretty nasty things. Uh, you know, I mean, it's one thing to go and look at that on somebody's Telegraph feed or, or some Facebook page, but to actually find it under the masthead of our biggest news organisations, I think, gives it uh, a sense of importance and prominence and significance that it probably wouldn't have otherwise. You know, a thousand people at a protest, that, that's a big deal, but it's not a super big deal. It happens all the time for different causes. This one's gone on for longer. I, I actually really wonder maybe if it would have, if it wasn't for all of that perceived importance that that, that coverage gave it at the beginning. Look, I, th I think one um, thing that the media also ought to think hard about is whether it's actually factually accurate to describe this as an anti-mandate protest, whether that really captures its essence. I know that's how you know, the protest organisers want it to be described, but my own experience of it is a little different. Um, you know, nobody there, like when I was there, it must have been nearly 2,000 people. I was, I think, the literally only one that was wearing a mask. It, it feels to me like the accurate way to characterise the common beliefs of this crowd is that they don't believe in COVID. Um, they're COVID deniers, like climate deniers. That they they believe that it's either not a thing at all, or it's a thing, but it's it's not really dangerous. It might seem like a subtle point, but I actually think it's really important to be accurate about that. And if the whole Trump phenomenon should have taught the world's media one thing, it's that you can't allow people to name themselves if it's not accurate. You you really need to dig under that and. And, and apply an editorial judgment and, and just be brave about it. In that, in that regard, there were plenty of people in the mainstream media making that exact point, uh, which would have chimed with that belief that, um, you know, that COVID won't kill us and it's time, just time to let it rip, get over it um, and stop restricting ourselves. That, that, that point was, was plenty of vocalisation of that in mainstream media. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think the points lacked vocalization, but I think the the, the problem with going along with the description of it being an anti-mandates protest, as if that fully describes what it is, is, is that it actually, I mean, effectively, it's a propaganda line. It, it makes it feel much more um, relatable for a lot of people than it actually is. Now, you know, it's just it's just not as accurate. Well, this week we've seen a bit of a, an unusual, perhaps unexpected turn in that. Uh, stories alleging that uh, you know human waste being thrown at police, you know, contested by the protesters, the police hinting darkly that sexual assaults might have taken place. So if we do have intense coverage, both by uh, the sort of citizens uh, with their smartphones and mainstream media with reporters on the ground and maybe a kind of surveillance-type live stream feed, in the end, do we get um, a useful means of being able to at least check some stories, whether they're true, whether they're not, because no one seems to be able to agree on, on anything. Well, should we ditch media and just use security cameras from now on? I mean, that, that's not what media is. I mean, media's job is to actually in, engage with the world, report on what claims are being made and evaluate them and pre present you know, commentary so that people reading them can actually make a judgment about what's real. Just simply, just like squirting a fire hose of undigested information at people that's not helpful. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it, that now there's almost this expectation that if something happens in that protest, uh, such as the uh, alleged human waste throwing at police, that someone somewhere must be uh, either a reporter on the ground or somebody pointing a cell phone at it. You know, it's, it's a bit of a paradoxical irony that we uh, this thing seems to be getting saturation coverage, partly perhaps because the protesters claim that they don't get coverage or that they don't get honest coverage. 
Um, if that's all it takes to get that kind of saturation coverage, then I suppose you could expect to hear it from every future protest, from every future direction of the political spectrum. I, I mean, it's a bit of a silly claim, really, because how, what do you do about that? I mean, you can't solve it with quantity. You know, it's the quality of the coverage that needs to address that issue, I think. And Tony, a lot of your work in making documentaries and even sort of public education type stuff has been all about democracy, right? Part of it is public education about elections, uh, some of it documenting campaigns like your film campaign back in 1996, a really vivid vignette of the early days of MMP. And is it possible for to work out what the democratic significance of what's happened here is, just how historic this this might be now that we're still in the moment and it's still going on? My view is that it isn't clear yet. The work that I've done so far suggests to me that the, a significant part of the energy and the, and the kind of anger that's underneath this is, is older than COVID. And I think that it will last longer than COVID does. You know, I think in a, in a year or two years' time, when COVID is receding and not really an issue anymore, That'll tell us how significant it was. I, I, I think there's a pretty good chance that it is significant. There's a lot of people who are becoming engaged and, and a lot of them are becoming quite radicalised. Uh, the, the political flavour of it is a little unclear. There's, there's people from all kinds of political backgrounds, as you can see from that recent Curia research. But, you know, it does appear that there's a significant thread of, of very far-right sort of Trumpist um, ideology uh, that's becoming picked up and becoming kind of meaningful to a lot of people in this protest. Um, whether that takes on a political life beyond COVID, I think it might. And, you know, that would be new for New Zealand and could be very significant. From, from my point of view, the really important question is, is whether uh, these people feel that democracy uh, is, is a valid way to stay engaged. If, if they really don't, I mean, if they feel all politicians are the same and they should all be hung and the media can't be trusted and so on, they're stepping outside and beyond democracy, I suppose. And how people actually express what they want, how people pursue change when they have no belief in democracy, again, that's not something that New Zealand has had a lot of experience with and it, it doesn't seem like it's likely to end well to me. And last year we had the 40th anniversary of the Springbok Tour protests and it was interesting watching that stuff because there's a fairly limited range of archive to draw on. I mean, if this is to be uh, something that people will want to look back on and explain in, in, say, 10 or 20 years, the volume of stuff uh, from tiny chunks on social media through to those hours and hours of live stream, um, making a definitive look back docker on it, where would you even start? You know, I, I don't think it's going to be a whole lot of protest footage, to be honest. I, th I think the really interesting question is who are these people and, and what's happened uh, that's brought them to here and, and, and where do they want to go next? You know, it's, New Zealand's been nervous about asking that question, in my experience, but it's actually quite a good one to ask now because this might have given us a, a visibility on some people who have always been there but just haven't haven't been very very noticed before. You know, it's probably good for our democracy and our future and perhaps the way that our media functions to become aware that there are people who are that mad and, and feeling that alienated from a lot of the power sources in our society. You know, it, it would be a smart thing for New Zealand to understand that a little bit better. And to your mind, do the media deserve quite a bit of credit for, in spite of the hostility and you know the ejection that you encountered and others have, that they have gone back and tried to do it? Uh, they've gone there, they've actually tried to engage with the people, even though you know they encounter, even before they get into the compound in some cases, they, they encounter hostility and in some cases get kicked out. 
Look, you know, in the past I've organised protests and it's sort of an inevitable thing that you attract people who are there for a fight and kind of there for trouble. You know, I think it's great that the media have made a serious effort to to try to engage and to try to show what's under the surface. At the end of the day, that's what matters. You know, when, when everyone's gone and the, and the concrete blocks are gone and the, the lawn's regrowing, um, what's going to matter a lot more is what has gone back to our provincial towns and cities, who, who has gone back feeling what and, you know, what forms it likely to take in the future. And I guess the fact that a lot of people had signs saying things like the media is the virus and pretty seeing them as part of the problem as they saw it in league with government and all the other forces that were against them, so the enemy, if you like. And yet maybe when it's all over, they might think back and think, well, you know, politicians didn't come down and talk to them, bar a couple, uh, but, you know, media did, that individual journalists and media organisations did commit to, to doing it, even though they weren't welcome. Yeah. Although people there were nervous of having me around because they, they, they really do think that the media's been you know, hostile to them. And, and you know, I, I think it would be, it's great that our media have, have, been, um, have been reasonably stoic about, about putting up with a little bit of nonsense and perhaps a degree of un- uncertain risk to get in and, and do the work. So that's awesome because that's what it's going to take. I mean, you can't sit on the speaker's, um, sp- you know, the speaker's porch and film it from there and think that that's going to make it meaningful. It won't. We, we, it needs, it requires in- relationships and intimacy and asking real human questions of people. It's Tony Sartorius, a documentary maker whose outfit Unreal Films is dedicated to documenting democracy in action. And he's one of several reporters and media workers who is ejected from the Parliament grounds this week during the protest. While the protest has been going on, COVID cases have been surging nationwide and inevitably the first cases at the occupation of Parliament were confirmed this week. Now the government, health experts and officials have been urging all eligible Kiwis to get their booster if they haven't already, to keep themselves and each other safe and the hospitals less populated too. But one big name broadcaster who did his own research wasn't on the same page this week. So I've gone from 1.4 to 0.3 Yes, it's a drop. Yes, I'm better protected. I'm allegedly more, less likely to get it in the first place. That's somewhat debatable, apparently. But are those odds that I would go, I must go get a booster? No, not at all. News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking last Monday, two days before his boss at NZME, unveiled financial results which showed that their company had recovered pretty well from COVID's impact on its bottom line last year. Now, at the same time, Michael Boggs said that NZME helped Kiwis stay safe during COVID-19 last year. We recognise the responsibility that comes with acting as a voice of record for New Zealand, he said, and to make a positive impact in our community. Hayden Donnell looked at all that and more in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay on The Lately Show last Wednesday. If you missed it, that's on our page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or it's in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. And there you'll also find The Detail, Newsroom's podcast co-produced with RNZ. And in last Thursday's episode, Sharon Brett Kelly toured the occupation of Parliament and also, a bit like Tony Sartorius, had some pretty interesting encounters with Camp Freedom Security. (music) 
Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard the Dominion Post editor Anna Fifield complaining about the public service and state agencies becoming increasingly averse to media scrutiny and dodging legitimate questions more often. But agencies of state can't avoid the scrutiny of MPs on parliamentary committees once a year. And this is the time of year for the annual reviews of the state agencies which produce, fund and oversee our media. Now these used to be face-to-face encounters between the MPs and the top brass at those agencies and they could get a bit tense if there were problems to sort out. Two years ago, for instance, RNZ's leaders got a pretty rough ride over the RNZ concert controversy. Did you explicitly ask for a frequency for the youth radio? We, what I did is I talked I've about... I've heard that. I've yeah. asked a very direct question. Did you explicitly ask for a frequency? No, but what okay, I did... thank you. I, that's what I needed to know. But these days they're a bit more antiseptic affairs because they're all done via Zoom. And so it was earlier this month when the Broadcasting Standards Authority had its annual review and the chair, Susan Staley, told the Economic Development, Science and Innovation Committee that complaints they got from the public during 2021 were up by more than half on the previous year. As we know, these are stressful times for communities and audiences and the BSA appears to act as some sort of pressure valve. The uh, 206 complaints, I nearly said thousand because it felt like thousands, the 206 complaints we received last year represented a 52% increase on 2020. Now, her claim that we're a bit more cranky about what we're seeing and hearing on the air in the COVID era these days is also backed up by TVNZ's annual report for last year. They got almost 1,800 complaints, which is almost 500 more than the year before. And there were other complaints too, TVNZ said, though those ones actually should have gone to the Advertising Standards Authority, the Classification Office, the Chief Censor or the Media Council, which covers non-broadcast news media. Now that's a lot of watchdog bodies and in the digital era their work overlaps. So the government's now pursuing a new system for regulating our media content to replace that range of agencies we have now. And in its annual review at Parliament, the BSA's Susan Staley said they support that. Audience habits and the platforms they use have changed significantly. Broadcasters have adapted, but the legislative settings are yet to catch up, and this has resulted, in our view, in fragmentation, gaps and overlaps. However, when MPs got their chance to quiz the BSA's top brass, it was only at the very end that that big rejig of regulation came up when the National Party's broadcasting and media spokesperson, Melissa Lee, asked this question. What does the BSA think would be the best model for media regulation? Considering... If if I had that answer for you, Melissa, I could probably set myself up as a consultant to make a lot of money at the moment. (laughs) And the reason for that slightly nervous laugh there was that the rejig will be tricky and probably controversial. News media and advertisers accustomed to self-regulation to uphold agreed standards won't necessarily sit comfortably under the same umbrella with the banning power of a censor's office or with the BSA's legal power to penalise broadcasters and also its mission to protect New Zealanders from harm as well as merely upholding media standards. Indeed, the Department of Internal Affairs said when launching the project in June last year, the goal is to better protect New Zealanders from harm, irrespective of the way that content is delivered. Now, what they propose may well rub media freedom advocates up the wrong way, and the freedom of speech lobby too. That's one to watch in 2022. 
Now, last week, another parliamentary committee reviewed the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which oversees the government policy and most of the public funding of our media. The Ministry's Chief Executive, Bernadette Kavanagh, confirmed that last September, a business case for a new public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ had been completed, and that's the cornerstone of the government's strong public media programme. But she was also asked about an independent consultant's report into the sustainability of the plurality of our media and the public funding for that. Now, often when reports endorse the work of the agencies and ministries, there'll be a press release sent out to draw attention to it. But this one appeared unannounced on the ministry's website the previous Friday, even though the report had been written last November. Now, the report concluded that actually we're OK for plurality and diversity right now in New Zealand, and there wasn't a strong case for funding commercial media companies at the moment. But at the moment, that's where the bulk of the government's $55 million public interest journalism fund is going. At the Ministry for Culture and Heritage's annual review, Nationals' Melissa Lee hinted that the ministry had buried the report and tried to distance themselves from it. And in Parliament the next day, she asked the Minister of Broadcasting and Media if he would scrap the Public Interest Journalism Fund. And Melissa Lee also asked Chris Farfoy this. Noting that the superior report states New Zealanders are currently well served by plurality in the media, will the minister continue with his plans for the disestablishment of RNZ and TVNZ and the creation of a new public media entity? Mr Speaker, I think if you look at audience trends, uh, how they are watching and listening and uh, consuming media, that our public media entities also have to make sure that they are fit for purpose. The government is intent on doing that. It was a commitment we made at the last election. Well, this week, several media reported that Cabinet Ministers had made a call on whether or not to proceed with a new public media entity, but the Minister and his staff would not say when the future of public media will be revealed to the public. Like everything else about this plan, that's being considered behind closed political doors. There may well be some questions about that, though, this coming week, when TVNZ has its annual review at Parliament, with the new Chief Executive Simon Power along for the ride. We'll look at that next week here on Media Watch, and why RNZ appears to have been excused from an annual review altogether this year, when there's still so much to talk about. But for now, that's all from Media Watch for this week. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.